0: Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anish Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the role of surgical pathology in certain cancers with Dr. Marie Robert, Dr. Robert is a professor of pathology and of medicine at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology.
1: Marie, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do. Sure. So I am uh,
2: a, a surgical pathologist, and I this is a somebody who goes to medical school and does a residency in the specialty of pathology. And that specialty involves looking at uh, diseases in the tissues, in biopsy samples and and surgical resection samples from patients. Uh, and we we look at that very deeply uh, under both with our naked eye and under the microscope, uh, and um, then inform the uh, surgeon, clinician, oncologist, who's taking care of the patient about what we're seeing and what their disease uh, process might be.
1: Yeah. You know, I I often tell patients that uh, there's only two people who can tell you anything for sure, God and the pathologist, because we rely so heavily on the diagnosis that's rendered um, by pathologists. So, uh, you know, tell us a little bit more about what got you interested in pathology and What got you interested in GI and liver pathology in particular? So that is an easy
2: question to answer, and no secret if you know my family at all. So I am the daughter of uh, a French-Canadian nurse and physician scientist, my father, uh, Andre Robert, who was a basic scientist studying gastrointestinal diseases so he had both the clinical side MD and the scientific training and so I grew up visiting his lab and seeing and actually you know he would let me do a little help in the lab in in participating in his experiments uh, and so this is when I went to college and medical school um, I thought that medicine was uh, this, the study of disease. Uh, And so when I, it was, you know, not a far um, uh, challenge for me to decide that pathology was where my heart really lay. And of course, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And I was immediately drawn towards all things of the gastrointestinal tract, liver, and pancreas.
1: So tell us a little bit more about kind of What you do day to day, I mean, because one of the things that is frustrating, anxiety provoking uh, for patients is the wait. They have the biopsy done and then we say we need to wait. And and I always tell patients, you know, never rush the pathologist because you, you don't necessarily want a fast answer. You want the right answer because everything that we do rests on what you say. So can you give us a little bit more granularity in terms of what happens in terms of that black box while we wait?
2: I am so delighted to talk about this because we are, believe it or not, even though we are not meeting your patient firsthand, we are constantly mindful of the fact that there is A wonderful human being on the other end of this specimen. And we are working as fast as we can to provide, as you say, the right answer. So, what does this entail? So, take a biopsy. Uh, It is put in a fluid called formalin, usually, that is allowed, that sort of hardens the tissues so that we can then put them through an overnight process. And we actually, this may sound crazy, we actually take the small samples or large samples and put them into paraffin wax, melted paraffin wax that then hardens in a small little box, if you will. We call it a tissue cassette. And believe it or not, old-fashioned thing like paraffin wax is what holds the tissue in place while we then apply a very sharp knife, it's called a microtome, to the sample. And we're actually taking small slices of the sample. We take that, put it on a microscope slide, remember from science class, and that microscope slide is then, with the tissue section on it, is stained with some very pretty colors, purples and pinks. Really, pathology is like looking at beautiful art under the microscope. And these dyes, if you will, or stains uh, adhere to the cells. And we, during our residency, have learned how to recognize cells with these dyes under the microscope. So that whole process of just getting to the glass slide takes at least one day. So, you know, one day gone. Now, depending on um, the type of sample it is, we can then grab it quickly begin our process of looking under the microscope and in some situations we are able to give an immediate answer doing nothing else to the sample just looking at the microscope for for you know 3 or 4 minutes and we're able to assess everything and give a give the the surgeon oncologist whomever gastroenterologist and then the patient the answer they need but in especially in cancer there are often other steps we need to take to get the best possible answer with the greatest amount of detail and nuance that will really help the person just treating the patient next to know exactly what therapy to apply. So these extra steps include things like we, we use these terms called special stains. So if you think of a stain, think of like paint or, or these colors I mentioned, and there are a variety of very uh, technical and highly, you know, honed um, technologies that we can apply to the tissue, and this is getting more and more finessed every day. We can now even do molecular and genetic analysis, uh, and and put what we call biomarker stains and approaches, so we can really get much further now to helping to guide. even the exact medication one might use, but this does take time. So sometimes there's a first answer and then there's another more detailed answer that comes uh, a day or a week later. Sometimes we have to hold up the whole thing for four or five days just to get the right answer from the start. So that's sort of a long answer to your question, but it is complete. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, so this is why I I think it's good information for people who are listening and potential patients to kind of understand why it can take so long. Because sometimes we expect these days to to get an answer instantaneously, and and that's just not uh, practical or or feasible. So, I want to dig a little bit more into some of the things that you mentioned, Marie. So, one is that, you know, in medical school and in residency, you as a pathologist got very good at recognizing patterns, understanding what looks benign under a microscope and what looks malignant under a microscope. But can you tell us a little bit more about the secrets that go into that pattern recognition? Because that's another piece that people don't really understand. I mean, how can you tell the difference between you know, a, a benign polyp, uh, something that then is perhaps a, a carcinoma in situ, a precancer, um, and then something that is truly uh, cancerous. I, I, that, for many people, is a nuance that we don't really understand. How how do you make that distinction?
2: So, uh, thank you for these wonderful uh, pathology type questions the the answer is it all starts with knowing what is normal what is normal tissue appearance we use the term histology it doesn't matter but it's just what are you expecting to see that is normal so in anything that you look at and in, in looking at you know anything around your house or in your workplace your desk is something out of place so first to understand What is normal tissue? So you want to talk about, say, a colon polyp. We first have to learn, and this is actually, you know, at least a four-year training process in residency, and then often today, one or two years of specialty fellowship training. We learn very quickly what is normal in our first couple of years of residency training. And normal means how in health, this wonderful machine that is our body is organized At the cellular level so that you know you look at your skin and you see skin you you might see freckles or, or some blood vessels underneath under the microscope we learn what all those layers from the outside of the skin to underneath the skin down into even the muscles and the bone look like so once we have that template sort of that pattern if you will pattern recognition in our mind then we begin very slowly to build, to learn abnormal. And the, one of the first things we start with is inflammation. Uh, you know, you get a cut uh, and you notice that there are bee sting and you notice swelling right away, redness. Well, we learn what that looks like under the microscope with, you know, too much fluid and, and inflammatory cells from the immune system being called to that area. The same is true when we start talking about cancer. There's often a process starting from an early, uh, let's say neoplastic, um, meaning that the cell is stopped just minding its own business and staying put where it should be to maintain the normal, but is now dividing and growing. Uh, and, and we can see that under the microscope by changes in actually how the cell looks. Uh, over over time, that growth can then uh disrupt the normal to the point that there is disruption of the, the um, little little uh, boxes, the, the, the little alleys and lanes that, that cells need to stay in. And they invade. When we talk about invasive cancer, it's because those cells actually go into a compartment that they have no business being, like an epithelial cell, which should be on the surface. So if you look at your skin, it's lined by a certain kind of cell. We call it an epithelial cell just the lining cell. If it becomes a a tumor, it can then go down into the soft tissues, even the muscle and bone, et cetera. And we can see this all under the microscope. So recognizing cancer or recognizing an abnormal process is recognizing that the normal has been disrupted.
1: And so, so, you know, one of the questions that people often ask is, you know, how important is it or is it important to get a second opinion with regards to your pathology? So very often you may have your biopsy done at one place. If you go to another place to get treatment, they'll say, well, we need our pathologist to look at the slides. So is it that you know, a pathologist is a pathologist is a pathologist, and this is a black and white answer, and everybody is going to say the same thing, in which case, why repeat it? Or is there some nuance there? And and how important or not important is it to get a second opinion on your pathology slides?
2: So another great question. I am a big fan of second opinions, and I recommend that when folks are getting impactful diagnoses, like a cancer diagnosis that's going to change their life and start um, a, a, a train in motion of serious therapeutics and operations, that a second opinion should always be obtained. Um, and I'm not offended if someone would like to get a second opinion uh, on a pathology diagnosis that I have made. Um, it, you know, it, it many times, as you sort of allude to, probably 90% or more of the time, there will be no disagreement in an original diagnosis. But sometimes there is either a really a complete disagreement, very, very rarely a complete disagreement between, hey, you know, actually, I'm not sure this is cancer. I know that this was thought to be cancer, but actually I'm doing a little more extra work on it. And I'm finding that maybe it might be just a pre-cancer. It may, some nuance about that. In addition, uh, In tertiary care centers, tend to have specialized pathologists that are only doing one thing. So in my case, I'm only doing gastrointestinal pathology, Uh, whereas in other centers, there's a group of wonderful general pathologists who are looking at all all, all specimens from all parts of the body, and they are all all outstanding, And, and this is a good system. But if it's a really impactful diagnosis, um, it's not a bad idea to have a very impactful diagnosis reviewed by someone who is a recognized
1: specialist, and they exist all over the country and all over the world. Perfect. Well, we're going to pick up the story learning more about uh, surgical pathology right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more with my guest, Dr. Marie Robert.
0: Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital where you can view videos from their survivorship team by searching for the Smilo Survivorship playlist on YouTube. The American Cancer Society estimates that more than 65,000 Americans will be diagnosed with head and neck cancer this year, making up about 4% of all cancers diagnosed. When detected early, however, head and neck cancers are easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers. Yale Cancer Center was recently awarded grants from the National Institutes of Health to fund the Yale Head and Neck Cancer Specialized Program of Research Excellence, or SPOR to address critical barriers to treatment of head and neck squamous cell carcinoma due to resistance to immune, DNA damaging, and targeted therapy. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Marie Robert. We're talking about the important role that pathology plays in cancer. And right before the break, we were talking about the role that pathology plays in actually making the diagnosis. Like you go for a biopsy and is this cancer or is this not cancer? That distinction is actually made by a pathologist whom you may never meet, uh, but that your team really relies on. Now, Marie, the other thing that pathologists often really provide is some of the genomic information, whether that comes in the form of special stains like you were telling us about before the break, or whether it comes in actually, you know, doing things like sequencing and telling us about genetic and genomic mutations. Can you talk a little bit more about how that's done and, and the importance that that plays in various cancers?
2: Yes, delighted. So I would say, so I've been practicing for you know about three decades now. And over the course of my career, there has been really in the past 10 to 15, and I would say even in the past five, an explosion of new technologies and new information that uh, help, uh, especially in cancer, help oncologists and surgeons uh, fine-tune and find uh, very specific therapies for a specific patient's tumor. How is this done? And it comes under the general um, heading of molecular pathology. And this means that, so we talked about looking at the microscope, the light microscope, and we can determine a lot from there. Now we're getting inside the cell, and it's specifically the cell nucleus for the most part. And so every cell, I should say, has a central brain called a nucleus and then something called the cytoplasm, which is where all the working parts of the cell that do what they're supposed to do reside. But the nucleus is where the chromosomes are—the genetic material that are the, um, you know, the blueprint for what that cell should do. All over the body, tumors tend to occur when those genes or chromosomes, the chroma, the genes on the chromosomes. The um, so chromosome is divided up into a you know gazillion genes, each one doing something, uh, and tumors happen when what we call mutations occur uh, or deletions or other types of fusions and other damage, overall damage to the genes and the genetic structure on the chromosomes. When this happens, when there's an alteration for the bad, several things can happen. One is that a cell just recognizes that, oh, you are no longer functioning normally and the body's going to sort of take you right out of commission and you're you're off the assembly line and actually kills the cell. That's a good thing. Unfortunately, other times the cell, um, the mutations or genetic alterations uh, give the cell power to divide, make more cells with those same problems. And that is the beginning of a tumor. We can now detect very smart scientists have created technologies that allow us to look, even from the biopsy that you gave us, the same piece of tissue that we made the diagnosis of a tumor on. We can take the rest of that sample and apply something called next generation sequencing and other techniques. Why is this important? This is important because these days there are more and more specific Therapies.
1: How do you know when you say this doesn't apply to every patient and to every tumor? How do you know whether your tumor should have all of those fancy schmancy tests done or whether simply looking at that pink and purple uh, dyes under the microscope is sufficient? So maybe you had your biopsy done at a given institution and you were told that this was a particular kind of cancer should patients know which particular types of cancer should get um, advanced kind of diagnostics done that might help their care? Um, How do people figure that out? How do you know which cancers and which patients need to have more studies done and which ones don't? So that is a
2: terrific question. I think that every
1: patient, and I
2: hope every patient listening, who has um, some sort of tumor or cancer diagnosis and is beginning down that path of getting treated, should ask the question, does my sample, will my sample, will this tumor benefit from genetic testing, molecular testing or whatever phrase you want to use? And it is the oncologist who knows best. So if you're not talking to an oncologist, talk to an oncologist. The oncologist will know best that, oh, yes, this tumor, if it has this mutation, we have these three drugs that we might want to try. And this is certainly true in many tumors of of the gastrointestinal tract, liver and pancreas. And the oncologist will also know, well, today as things stand, we don't have anything that we're giving based on genetic analysis. And so they may say, at this moment in time, we know what to do. This is, this is exactly what we should do, and we don't need further information. I will also share that at many academic centers, there is a philosophy that really, we want to sequence every tumor, and we want to start moving towards a world where every diagnosis of malignancy, cancer type of tumor, will automatically have a, um, gen, um, you know sequencing of the genetics of that tumor. And this is for two reasons. One is that we want to continue learning about tumors because we, we, we are continuing to develop medicines uh, based on the information we're finding. And the second reason is that sometimes a tumor of one type may have a mutation that we weren't expecting. And hey, you know, there's a drug out here. We usually use this drug to, te- to treat another tumor. Usually not this tumor, but now that you tell us this tumor surprisingly has this mutation, well, you know, now we've got another thing to put in the toolkit.
1: And so one of the questions that people may be asking as they're thinking about this is, you know, oftentimes when patients think about genetics, They think about their family history and whether they need to have a blood test or a saliva test to look for genetic mutations that may predispose them to certain cancers. So, for example, you know, the one that is most often talked about, at least in my sphere, is BRCA1 and 2, um, which will increase your risk of breast and ovarian cancer. How is that different from the work that you're talking about, where you're looking at the genetics of the cancer itself.
2: Yeah, that is super. And um, these things go actually hand in hand. So the, the, the thing we just discussed was any particular tumor that one might have. Uh, and that is something that an oncologist in discussion with their patient may may initiate. But in addition, the patient, their physician, oncologist, and sometimes the pathologist will discover that there's something about the patient as they walk in the door with their first diagnosis of cancer that, or even maybe they don't have it yet, but there's a family history, uh, should be, something in them should be analyzed for a specific genetic disorder like BRCA, as you discussed, or like in the GI tract familial polyposis syndrome or something called Lynch syndrome, which are colon cancer syndromes uh, and endometrial and other cancer syndromes. So in these scenarios, there may or may not be a, a cancer diagnosis yet in the patient. But they may on their annual visit to their you know physician discover that, oh, yeah, well, all, you know, my mom, dad, and three uncles had colon cancer before the age of 50. That person, there will be a series of things set in motion, like early screening in the first place with a colonoscopy and possibly some blood tests uh, in it with a genetic counselor that might go on. Where a pathologist might be the first one to initiate something is that when we get a sample from someone of a of the right age group or maybe a young person or that they have for example on colonoscopy have uh you know 10 or more types of polyps that are all precancerous polyps we will raise our hands and say hey here's your diagnosis and oh by the way please sign this patient up for some for genetic screening because they they have too many polyps at age 50 that you know that's we want to make sure it doesn't mean something more
1: Right. and but, but there's a clear difference in terms of, you know, in the one instance when we're talking about molecular diagnostics, we're really talking about doing these tests to look for mutations in the cancer itself. Whereas when we're looking at predispositions and uh, genetic screening, for example, we're really talking about cells that are baseline, that are in your blood or in your saliva that all of your cells carry, versus in the tumor itself. Is that right?
2: That's absolutely right, and it's such a good uh, nuanced point. Um, and and so this again, it's all good tools that physicians that at all, at all levels of interacting with folks. So in the in the um, you know annual physical exam. Uh, at that level by family history personal and family history the physician uh, can can begin the process and say oh yeah we probably want to check into this Uh, and at the same time finding finding early lesions at the pathology level in addition to finding uh, a, a truly already invasive cancer as they walk in the door Someone walks in the door at age 45 with colon cancer. They already have it. We're going to work on that. They're going to get testing of the tumor itself to see what might work. But because they're young, this will. This will all the clinicians will say, oh, yes, and by the way, we want to screen your family members now, too. We want to just make sure this is not just an isolated
1: thing. Right. Right. So, Marie, in our last kind of 30 seconds here, where do you think the field of pathology is going? Should we be expecting more of these kinds of genetic and genomic tests?
2: Yes, I think it's going uh, to go further and further and deeper in this direction with hopefully much more useful information down the line. I believe we are also poised to enter the digital era, and with artificial intelligence to apply to samples to improve uh, even further our ability to glean treatable information.
0: Dr. Marie Robert is a professor of pathology and of medicine at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.